So I don't know about you. I mean, we're kind of wrapping up the summer. Did you have any summer projects? I had a summer project. I had a couple of summer projects. And you know me. I am not a mechanical person. I have a really difficult time making building things. You know, I watch people do it and it looks so easy. So in the back of our house, there's a deck and it went off the kitchen. And then there's a flight of stairs into a landing area. And then I noticed in the landing area, the rail around it was getting wobbly. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to replace this. And I'm like, okay, I can do the rail. I can do the rail. Just take it off and just cut the boards exactly the way it is and put it back on. So I did that. I took the rail off. Unfortunately, I began to see something else. The foundation around that little landing area, it's rotten. I mean, the deck, the, the six by six posts were starting to rot. And then I went back to the other side and under the stairs, and there's a bigger six by six. And I looked at that, and I'm like, I don't even want to touch it. Because if I touch it, then I know that it's bad and I'm going to have to replace it. But I touched it anyway. And so we had all of these foundational posts that we had to replace. And, and I knew that I couldn't, I, I couldn't skirt on this. I, I had to get it right. I had to do the foundation right or, or the, the, the deck, the stairs are not going to stand up or that landing area is not going to stand up. And I didn't want to do it. You know, foundations are really important. Will it be the deck on a house? Will it be a, a house? Or maybe a discipline in school. I got a D. I'm, I got a D in, in my geometry class in seventh or eighth grade because I couldn't catch up. I lost the foundation of what it meant to, to learn geometry. Oh, think about a skill up here. You, we, we have to have foundations. We, we have to have foundations. In our, foundations are absolutely important. And, and foundations are incredibly important for people of faith. The Bible says this in the book of Isaiah. It talks about, it talks about see, I lay in Zion a, a, a stone, a precious cornerstone. And, and the one who looks to that person, which is the Messiah Jesus, the one who looks to him is going to have a strong foundation. He, he's the foundation and the cornerstone of our faith in the Old Testament. And, and then Jesus comes along as the Messiah. And, and what does he do? He, he does all these wonderful miracles like the, the Messiah is supposed to do. And he, he brings all of these wonderful teachings. And he says, listen, by the way, I'm going to bring all of these things. And then I'm going to go and offer myself as a sacrifice on the cross. I'm going to give myself as a sacrifice for cross. Like Isaiah chapter 53, what we just sang today. And then the, the apostles, those first disciples of Jesus, they, they began to know and understand the teachings of Jesus. And then they were given the responsibility, the apostles, disciples, people like Luke, to pass on the truths of God's word, to pass on the teachings of Jesus. And they became, the apostles became that foundation in which the truth of God's word was built into our lives in the early church. And, and as the church began to, to, to meet and gather together, what they did was they began to look at the apostles' teaching, look at the, the teachings of Jesus and say, you know what, that's the foundation for our lives too. And what we need to do is we need to gather in the context of a small group like this and we need to encourage and help and build up one another in the faith because that needs to be the solid foundation in which we live our lives. And here it is, you and I, as we embrace and trust Jesus with our faith, we become, the Bible says, we're, we're spiritual stones. We are spiritual stones in the sense that you and I represent God's creation, God to the world. You and I are being built into this spiritual house because we are stones being built up 
in the face of God's word. And you and I have a responsibility to do that. And then now, as part of the church, you and I are pillars and foundations of the truth. So what we do is we have the opportunity, the privilege of being able to represent who Jesus is to the world around us. And in the way that I live my life, in the way that these ladies have lived their life, and an example, a light, and they are that foundation in which we need in the church. And the reason we need to know and understand is this. Because life is hard. Life is very, very difficult. And you and I, we are always going to be confronted about the reality and the truths of who Jesus is. People are going to come and they're going to poke holes in what we believe. They were going to come and they're going to poke holes in this foundation. And they're going to come along and say, you know what? That whole Bible thing that you have there, you know, that, that whole Bible, well, that's really just a bunch of myths. I wouldn't trust the Bible. There's contradictions. We don't have the original documents. We don't have any idea what that stuff's about. It's written a bunch of guys. We have no idea who these people are. And they begin to poke holes in the things that we believe. And they begin to poke holes in the Bible and to begin to to come across to us and challenge our faith. And we have the opportunity to say, listen, do do I know this fall of foundation? Or are people going to come up, question what I believe, and it's going to throw my equilibrium off? Listen, there are people... People and the people who've grown up in the church walking away from the foundation of who Jesus is. I, I've read it, the studies show that three quarters of our young people are walking away from the church because they don't have this solid foundation, or the solid foundation is begin to be fractured, is begin to be pushed aside, and, and they don't have necessarily have an opportunity to respond. And what they know is true. They're, they're being knocked off for what they believe. And what you and I are called to do because of who we are, because of this foundation, what you and I are called to do is be defenders of the faith. We are called to contend for the faith, the once for all faith. I came across this quote. It's an interesting quote this week. And this is kind of the context what we deal with people in life. It says this. Adults with imaginary friends are stupid. Adults with imaginary friends are stupid. That's a dig at Jesus. That's a dig at Jesus. Well, he's just imaginary. He's a figment of your imagination. You don't really know who he is. We don't know who he is. He just, and that's the context in which you and I are living our lives right now. We are trying to live for the truth. And over and over, people are attacking the Bible. They're attacking the person of Jesus Christ. So that's what I wanted to do last week. I wanted to come and remind us that you and I have the opportunity to be contenders of the faith. We need to fight for the once for all faith that's been given to us. We need to fight for the word of God and what's been given to us. And that's why we looked at the the gospel of Luke. We looked at a guy who was around at that particular point in time and the words that he wrote. He wrote with a very, very specific point so that a a guy by the name of Theophilus would know the truth of God's word. Luke chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. This is the text that we use. And notice what it says. Luke chapter 1, the text that we looked at last week, it says this. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that... You may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. You and I can know the certainty of the things that we have been taught because of who Jesus is in the Word of God. We need to know the Word of God. We need to know what the Bible says. We need to have that deep down inside of our heart as a foundation for our very, very lives. Because people are going to come and they're going to try and destroy our faith in a whole lot of different ways. 
getting us to, to get off track. In First John, it says, I, I write these things to you so that you may know with certainty that you have what? You have eternal life. We can know that the word of God is true. We can know that we have eternal life, life with Jesus because of what the Bible says to us. So the Bible is going to be attacked. Our belief and our understanding of the Bible. You know, another way that we're going to be attacked is this. Well, that Jesus guy, you know, I, I really don't know who he is and I, I don't think he's a really important person. And, and by the way, why, why would a guy by the name of Jesus have to come and die? Why would God come to earth or why would God send Jesus to die? It just seems really ludicrous. And by the way, for a heavenly father to crush Jesus, isn't that a form of child abuse? That's what people begin to think about the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. What I want to do this morning is this. I want to invite you to turn your Bible to Luke chapter 9. We come to a pivotal time in the ministry and the life of Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been with his disciples for, for about three, maybe three or so years. He's been with them. And, what, and what's happening is this. It, it's time for a pop quiz. He's done all these wonderful miracles. He, he's healed people. He, he's told people about truth. He's, he's done all of these wonderful things they've seen with their eyes. They've touched with their hands. They've seen all the wonderful works of Jesus. And now it's time for a pop quiz. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, you guys got it. I've been with you for a while now. I want to ask you, who do you think I am? And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to tell them who he is, what he came to do, and then our responsibility. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Three questions is what I want to deal with from our text this morning. Let me just read the text because this is God's word and I want you to get it. So let me just read the text. Luke chapter 9, beginning verse 18. Notice what he says. He says, once when Jesus is praying in in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, question number one. Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets of long ago. He's come back to life, reincarnation. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. God bless this man. Peter gets it right. The Christ of God, the Messiah of God. Jesus continues with question number two. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised again. Question number two is this. What did Jesus come to do? They didn't have it right. They thought they did, but they didn't have it right. Which leads into question number three. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? Verse 23 says, Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that we can sing about the cross, that we've been redeemed by the cross, that we've been forgiven. Father, the cross is so important to us because it wouldn't, what it means that we are forgiven of our sin, that we can live a new kind of life, Lord, and we can one day look forward to and anticipate being in heaven with you, free from all the pain and suffering, free from the ramifications from sin. Father, I pray that you'd open our eyes to the reality of your word. And Father, I thank you for these godly saints this morning. Father, thank you for Pauline and for Lynette and for Edna. 
and God, for the way that they have lived their lives for 80, maybe 90 years, I don't know. But they have been faithful to follow you and to live by faith, and we thank you for them. Father, thank you for the promise of heaven. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the way that our text lines up, it kind of lines up in three sections. And so I thought, well, let's just deal with three questions here. And the first question I want to deal with, the first question that comes out of the text is what Jesus asked them. And you can see that in verse 18 and 20. He asked them, who am I? Let me read the text. Once when Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him. He asked, who did the crowd say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Still others say one of the prophets of of long ago. They've come back to life. What about you? What about you? What about you? What do you believe about Jesus? Who do you say that I am? And Peter asked the Christ of God. So if you were to sit down with your family and friends, and I've had the opportunity to do this at times, and ask them, well, who do you think Jesus is? You may hear things like this. Well, Jesus was a good man. He was a wise man. He was full of wisdom. Jesus had some really great teachings. Some people might say, well, you know, I don't even know that Jesus really existed. We don't really have a whole lot of information about him. Did he really exist? I don't know. Maybe he's a prophet. He's a wise guy. I don't know. I looked at contemporary culture in a couple of ways, and I love to, to see what's going on in our contemporary culture and see what people believe about Jesus. And, and you know, people do believe in Jesus. They may not believe the same things that we do, but people believe in Jesus. I want to look at a couple of them. Elton John, the singer, he said something interesting. He said this, From my point of view, I would ban religion completely, even though there are some wonderful things about it. I love the idea of the teachings of Jesus Christ and the beautiful stories about it, which I loved in Sunday school, and I collected all the little stickers and put them on my book. But the reality is that organized religion doesn't seem to work. It turns people into hateful lemmings, and it's not really compassionate. I find what's interesting is that he embraced the teaching of Jesus. He had them as a foundation for his life as a children, and he didn't fully comprehend maybe what they were about. He says, listen, because of that, I want to ban organized religion. I just want people to live and do what they want to do. That's another man by the name of Mahatma Gandhi. I like what he said. I like your Christs. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. Wow, isn't that amazing? Maybe there's something about the way that we live our lives that's important, how we are to be a light testimony to one. Maybe the way that we live, it really is important. Maybe the way that we follow Jesus is really, really important. Last quote is this, Albert Einstein. I think he was a smart guy. As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. I'm enthralled by the luminous picture of the Nazarene, Jesus the Nazarene, mesmerized by his life. Let me ask you something. What do you believe about Jesus and who he is? Not just facts, not just a bunch of stuff in a book, but what do you believe about him and how he relates to your life? Because Jesus was asking the people, who do the people say that I am? John the Baptist. Maybe he's come back. You're a prophet from an old. You're this wise guy. Who do you guys think that I am? And Peter, ding, 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 gets it right. You're the Christ and the Messiah of God. You're the one prophesied about in the Old Testament, Isaiah. Peter says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. And they professed him to be and understood him to be their long-awaited Messiah. 
The one who had been promised in the Old Testament. The one who was going to come. And the anointed one of God who was going to come. And he was going to, to set up God's kingdom. He's going to vanquish their enemies. He's going to take care of Rome. He's going to usher in the kingdom. And everything's going to be right. He's going to usher in righteousness. He's going to rush in, usher in justice. And, and he's going to be the anointed one who's going to come. And we're going to worship. And, and Israel will be restored to its rightful place. We're all going to be a part of that. The title Messiah simply means Messiah, the anointed one. And they were waiting for this anointed. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and free them for who they were. There's a lot of different ways that people were anointed in the Old Testament. The high priests, prophets were anointed, kings were anointed. I came across a really interesting story about Queen Elizabeth and her coronation as queen. It says this, uh, the Queen Elizabeth was coronated in 1953. The service was publicized, it was shown, except for... Her anointing, when she would be anointed with the oil to be queen. When the Archbishop of Canterbury anointed her, they were able to see this from from behind the scenes. They reported what was going on. This is what he said. This is what the Archbishop of Canterbury said about the anointing of Queen Elizabeth to be queen. He said this, Be thy head anointed with holy oil, as kings and priests and prophets were anointed. And as Solomon was anointed king by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, so you be anointed, blessed, and consecrated. Queen over the peoples, whom the Lord thy God hath given thee to rule and to govern. Listen, there's no doubt that something sacred, something divine was going on here. As all of these people were anointed, we want you, queen, we want you to be anointed, what? To govern. The Lord has given you what? To to rule and to govern over the people. And that's the understanding that the people living in Jesus' time would have had of of the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one who's going to come. And what you're going to do is you're going to rule and govern all of your people. You're going to be on the throne and we're going to fall and worship you and everyone will fly through Jerusalem and you will be the one to whom we will give to. And that's their understanding of the Messiah, some of their understanding of the Messiah and what they would do. So when Jesus asked them the question and they say, ding, ding, and that's what they're thinking of. Yes, Messiah's going to come. He's going to offer himself. He's going to set up his kingdom and we're going to be with him together in the future worshiping him. Let me ask you something. Do you, do you know Jesus the Messiah as the one revealed in the Bible? Or is it just a concept? Is it just a guy in a book? Do you know him in such a way that he rules and reigns over your life? The decision the way? Day in and day out? Because that's going to be the demand of the text. The demand of the text is going to be take up your cross daily and what? Follow Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's a really hard thing to do. Because I like being on the throne of my life. I like being the king of my life. I don't want people telling me what to do, but I want to live my life the way that I want to live. And what Jesus was doing, he was confronting them with their understanding of the Messiah and who he is and what he's come to do and what he's come to be. So the answer to the first question is, who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. Question number two, what did he come to do? Look at verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, not to tell them that 
He was the Messiah. Verse 22, and he said, the Son of Man. By the way, go back and look in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8. That is a regal figure. That is a figure of authority. That's the one who's going to come, and he's going to to rule and, and reign on a throne. So this idea of Son of Man is taking us back to the promises of Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 about the, the Son of Man ruling and reigning. He said, the Son of Man must what? Suffer? Many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Why is it that Jesus wants him to be silent? If you look at the Gospel of Mark, if, if, you, if you read the Gospel, they, they call it the silent of Jesus, the, 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 the quietness of you, the silence of Jesus about who is, is the Messiah. And, and why is he saying, listen, don't tell people that I'm the Messiah? I wonder if it's this because of this. If the people have this understanding that the Messiah is going to come, he's going to rule, and he's going to reign, and he's going to set up his throne, he's going to set up the kingdom, and righteousness is going to prevail, and he's going to vanquish all of his enemies, which he had done in the past. He's going to vanquish Rome. He's going to vanquish all, all the things going on, and he's going to set the Messiah up to rule and reign on his kingdom. Wouldn't they want that? Wouldn't they embrace that? Wouldn't they say, yeah, we're with you in this? I think that's the way that they thought. The disciples thought, yeah, the kingdom's coming and I want to be a part of it. I'm all on board with that. This is power. This is a Messiah power. This is him ruling and reigning. Yeah, I want to be with him. I want to be right there with him, ruling and reigning with power. That's not the Messiah that Jesus came to do and to be. It comes in a very, very different way. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? He fed the 5,000 and they came... And you remember what happens at the end of that story? It says they wanted to come and do what? They wanted to make him king. Why did they want to make him king? Because he's a regal figure. And if he can give us bread, he can rule and reign, and he can take care of us. Yeah, let's make him king. And what does he do? No, he kind of sneaks off and slips off. They're not going to make him king. Why? Because it wasn't his time to be a king. That's what they didn't understand. That's what they didn't get. The purpose for Jesus coming to earth is what we sang about. It's to come and to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin on a bloody, cruel cross. Jesus came to come, the Messiah came to suffer and die on the cross so that you and I can have this idea of forgiveness of sin. And over and over, when you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at the Gospels, what he does is says, listen, I'm going to suffer. The Jewish people are going to reject me. You're going to reject me. But, but I'm going to go and I'm going to go to the cross and offer myself as a sacrifice for sin. Over and over in the Gospel of Luke, that's what Jesus is trying to teach. But they don't get it. A, a Messiah can't die. A king can't die. He's way too important. He can't die, even though Jesus consistently told them that. Luke chapter 9, verse 44 says, I, I, I'm going to be betrayed. And he was betrayed by Judas. Basically, almost all of the other people who walked away. In chapter 12, verse 50, he says, listen, I have a, a baptism of death that awaits me. I, I'm going to be immersed in death, in a horrible, horrible death. And he's continuing to talk to his people that way. Luke chapter 13, verse 31, he knew that Herod was trying to come and to take his life and destroy him because he did not, Herod did not want a rival king. 
chapter 17, verse 25, it says, Jesus is telling the people, Listen, I'm going I'm to go to the cross, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. Over and over and over, Jesus is reminding the people that, yes, he's the Messiah, but he has come to go and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. Only chapter 18, verse 31, he just gets more specific and he says, listen, this is going to happen. I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. His role as the Messiah, as the one anointed by God in the Old Testament, came with an understanding that he would die a horrible and a painful way on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53. The point of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection was to point him to the reality that he was coming and the focal point of his life was death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Notice what it says in verse 22. It says, it must happen. Not it will, it it must happen. In other words, we call that a divine necessity. A divine necessity, something needs to happen. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to come and he's going to offer himself as a painful sacrifice for sin. Jesus must go to the cross. The very purpose for Jesus coming in the incarnation, go back and read Luke chapter 1, is that he would come and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin on the cross. Do you believe that? See, You believe that when you know and understand what sin is really all about. And I think that's where we miss it. The disciples didn't get it. We don't get it because we don't know and fully comprehend what sin is all about. And Jesus said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go. By the way, no no one's going to take my life. You're not going to take my life. You're not going to kill me on a cross. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to offer myself up as a sacrifice. Nobody takes my life. You don't have authority to take my life. And Jesus consistently told them that. Luke chapter 13, verse 33. Notice what Jesus says. He's outside of Jerusalem. And they don't want him to go to Jerusalem because they know that he's going to be killed. And notice what he says. He says this. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day. Why? For surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. He was simply reminding the people that he needed to go to Jerusalem and he needed to go and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin on the cross. They didn't get it. They still didn't understand it. John, or Luke chapter 17, verse 25, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees about the, the Messiah and the arrival of the kingdom. When is the kingdom going to come? When is the end going to come? When are you going to usher into everything? And notice what he says. To the religious leaders, the Pharisees. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Yes, Jesus is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to rule and he's going to reign. But he needed to come and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. What does that tell us? It tells us this, that there is something horrible about humanity. There is something horrible horrible that lies deep down inside of every human heart and it's this idea of sin and we don't even like to talk about it in the church we don't like to talk about it in our culture anymore this idea that I might possibly be doing something that would be against God's revealed will is just absolutely foreign to us nowadays We've become really good at placing ourselves on the, on the throne and ourselves and all of life simply revolves around me and whatever I may want to do 
as opposed to looking at the author and the perfecter of life, the creator, the one who created us, who knit us together and falling at our knees and looking at him and saying, God, what is it you would have for my life? Acknowledging that it's not about me, that it's about some person else. It's about the creator God who loves me and spoke this very, very world into existence. Jesus came to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. Why? Because I'm a sinful human being. And you're a sinful human being. The Bible says there's nothing good that dwells in me. Yeah, we can do a lot of good stuff. We do good stuff all the time. But when the standard is the holiness and the righteousness and the perfection of God, all of a sudden when I look to him and I look to the cross and I look to what he's done for us, all of a sudden uh, the sin in my life is revealed. The wayward thoughts in my heart. Sometimes the way that I get angry and upset on the inside. The way that I may look at another person. The way that I might respond to a person. That's, that's, that's what sin is on the inside of us. Putting myself as the king on the throne. The Jewish man, Paul, put it very succinctly when he simply said this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has sinned. And we fall short of God's glory. Why? Because of this thing inside of us. And so Jesus, the Messiah, comes. He says, yes, I'm the Messiah. But I'm not the kind of Messiah that you think I am. I'm the kind of Messiah that's going to come. And I'm going to, I'm going to die for your sin. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to be crucified so that you can have this thing called new life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. Notice what the text says. Notice what John says. But you know. No, Gnosko, you know. Head, heart, you know. He appeared. He was revealed. He came so that he might, what? Take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. That's why Jesus came. He came to not rule and reign as a king right now on a throne. He came to rule and reign as a king in our hearts as he goes and offers himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sin. So that you and I could have this idea of being forgiven of our sin. Do you want to be forgiven of your sin? Are you glad that you're forgiven of sin? And and we don't get it. Listen. Let's not be hard against people who don't get it because the disciples didn't get it. When you go back and look at the text in the Gospel of Mark, it says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my father. In other words, God is the one that gave him the revelation because he couldn't understand what it meant for the Messiah to go and offer himself as a cross. He didn't get it. And a lot of people don't get it. There's a man by the name of... Uh, John Dixon, he was a Christian minister, and he spoke on the theme of the wounds of God at a university campus in Sydney, Australia. And during the question and answer time, a Muslim man came up, and, and he rose to explain. This is what the Muslim man said. He said this, How preposterous was that claim that the creator of the universe should be subjected to the forces of his own creation, that he would eat He would sleep and go to the toilet, let alone die on the cross. That's what the Muslim man said. Dixon said his remarks were intelligent, clear, and civil. The man went on to argue the fact that it is illogical that God, the cause of all causes, could have pain inflicted inflicted on him by any lesser human being. The man, the minister, Dixon, thought for a minute he couldn't come up with a knockdown argument or would he come back. But this is what he did say. He thanked the man for making the uniqueness of the Christian claim so clear. 
that Jesus would come and offer himself as a sacrifice is hard for people to comprehend. And yet that's what Jesus said he came to do. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christians hold up as precious. God's wounds on the cross. The song that we, we, we sang earlier, by his what? Wounds. We are healed. The wounds of Jesus on the cross, the beauty of the cross, the beauty of him going as a sacrifice. By his wounds, what we are healed. I'm reconciled to a holy God. I'm going to be reconciled to other people because of what Jesus has done, the ramifications for the way that I will live. Jesus' death on the cross brings ramifications for how I will live. That's all I had to. This isn't about power. This isn't about ruling and reigning. This is about giving yourself as a sacrifice, humbly giving yourself as a sacrifice, not only for yourself, but for other people. I want to give you a quote from Max Licata about the cross. This is what he said. The, the, the ramifications for the cross, the centrality of the cross. Think about this. Max Licata said this, the cross. It rests on the timeline of history like an, a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. History has idolized and despised it. Gold plated it and burned it. Worn and trashed it. History has done everything but ignore it. How could you ignore such a piece of lumber? Suspended on its beams is the greatest claim in history. A crucified carpenter claiming to be God on earth, divine, eternal, the death slayer. Never has timber been regarded so sacred. No wonder the Apostle Paul called the cross the event of the core of the gospel. Its bottom line is sobering. If the account is true, it is history's hinge, period. If not, the cross is history's hoax. Which is the cross for you, a hinge or a hoax? What do you believe about who Jesus is and who do you say that I am? The cross is Messiah going, offering himself as a sacrifice for us. And that's the answer to the question, what did Jesus come to do? To pay for my sin and to pay for your sin so that we can have eternal life with him. So the first question, who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. Second question is this, what did he come to do? Come and offer himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the very righteousness of God. He took my sin. He took your sin. So let me ask you, what do you do? What do you do? See, we need the cross to teach us how to live. Not about power and authority and being demanding. Think of Jesus the most powerful person in the world, the creator of the universe. In John chapter 13, all the men are gathered together. It's the Lord's Supper. Nobody washes anybody's feet. And the creator of the universe puts a a, a towel around him. And the most powerful man alive does what? He washes their feet. Why? He's He's not giving up his power. He's showing us what power truly is. Power is truly giving your life away and serving other people. It's denying yourself. It's losing your life for the sake of the gospel and the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is and what he's called us to do and what he's called us to be. That's the beauty. That's why we need the death of Jesus. 
Because he becomes the one that we look to as I live my life. So the third question is this, and then I'm done. How do you live? You reorient your life. You reorient your life. In verse 23, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Then he said to them all. He said to all of them. Not just the disciples, but everyone. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Let me just tell you something. The ladies in this room have done that. They've given up their life for Jesus. There's no doubt on my mind. You want to see power? Pauline Lynch is a powerful woman. Never got married. Consistently served the church. Lynette Province, I don't even know how old she is. She's taking care of Pauline Lynch. She's taking away. Isn't it raw? Sydney, 60 years. Consistent. That's power to me. That's power to live a life that's very differently. What is good for a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit his soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words, what the Son of Man, the Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, again, the Son of Man, the powerful being, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and his holy angels. The, the, the focus of this teaching from Jesus is verse 3. It says, verse 23, if anyone would come after him. In other words, there's a new way for you and I to reorient our lives and live. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he came to offer himself as a sacrifice for him. Now, demonstrate you're following him by doing the same things that he did. By the way, Paul says this, be imitators of God, dearly loved, and live a life of love. How? Just as Christ did, offering himself as a sacrifice for sin on the cross. How do you live that life of God? By giving yourself away. Philippians chapter 2. Real quickly, and then I'm done. Three ways for us to reorient our life. Number one, live selflessly. 23 says this, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. I've been crucified with Christ, and there's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself over me. That's the statement that we make. That's the way that we're to live our lives. Remember in Colossians 3, when Christ, who what? Who is your life? As a husband, as a, as a father, as a grandfather, as a member of community, I, I'm to daily give myself away to other people. I'm to place the entrance of other people in front of me. I'm to give myself away. Philippians chapter 2. N- notice what Paul writes about the beauty of the cross. He says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do we consider other people better than ourselves, even if we don't agree with what they believe? And the way that they live? Or or is it all about us and our agenda? No, we've got to serve other people and we need to do that. Even when they're trying to destroy our foundations, we've got to smile and reverently come to them. 
Each of you should not look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. You and I are called, because of the cross, to look out for the interests of others. When I first became a Christian, um, they told me to read, uh, the people in my life told me to read Mere Mere Christianity, a great book by C.S. Lewis. And in in the book, notice what he writes. I want to put this on. Notice what he writes about the, the ramifications for our life and how we're to live. It's kind of heady, so we'll just read it together. He says this, give me all I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or the crown or stop it, but to have it up. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. And I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give yourself my own will. Shall I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Colossians chapter 3. When Christ to Israel. He wants it all. Not the little things that I can control. Not the little things I don't. You know, God, Jesus, you can have it all, but I'm going to keep this little part of my life over here. Maybe this little hidden part of my life that nobody sees. Really? You think he doesn't see? And we're not sinners when we think that we can outsmart a God who knows all. Live selflessly. Second, live sacrificially. He must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Isn't that the image of the, of the cross? Isn't that the image of a Roman crucifixion? You're standing there watching the guy. He's got this cross on his back and he's struggling. He's carrying this cross. And where is he? He's heading to the hill. It's because what he's going to do is he's going to put the cross on the ground and he's going he's to be nailed to it and crucified. It's a picture of death. They would be very familiar with this. It's a picture of death. And he's saying, by the way, take up daily and do that. Well, Jesus, I did that last month. And it was really hard. No, he says daily when people come at you and don't do the things that necessarily, maybe your spouse, maybe it's someone you're at war with right now. Are we giving ourselves in the hard places of life, the difficulties and challenges of life, the things that we don't want to do? So um, just a, a cute little story. Uh, my, my, our grandson, Max, went to kindergarten this year. And like after about the third day, uh, Amber sent a picture of us to us. I mean, he would just sat down in bed. He was worn out from kindergarten. Man, when kindergarten's tough, you know. Reminding me of the story of this gal by the name of Linda, similar circumstances, but this is what she writes. She says this, that there was a time when this little boy was going from kindergarten and he was going into first grade. So it's like the first day of school. And they get halfway through and this little boy, he, he's packing up his stuff and he's ready to go home. And the teacher, he's in first grade now, the teacher looks at him and says, Billy, where, where are you going? So well, I'm, I'm going home. I did that last year. I'm going home. And she said, no, no, you're in first grade now, so you're going to go to lunch, and then you're going to come back, and we're going to do some more work, and we're going to do some more stuff. And he looked at her like she had a third eye. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. And he finally put his hands on his hips and said, Who in the world signed me up for this? (laughs) I wonder if we do the same thing to God. Really? 70 times 7, I got to forgive? 
Isn't that a little unrealistic? You mean I gotta turn the other cheek? I'm despised and people are mad at me? I've gotta love my wife as Christ loved the church? Are you, come on, you're being a little bit you're being a little bit unrealistic here. That's really hard to do. But see, that's that's where the cross comes in. That's where the cross comes in. That's why we need the cross. That's why Jesus went to the cross, to enable us to do the very things that we can't do because of his power working in and through us. We are to live selfishly. Live sacrificially, live selflessly. And the last thing is this, live boldly. And then we're done. If anyone is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. Listen, I don't want to shame Jesus. I don't. I know you don't either. We want to live powerfully for him. And we need to make sure that we have this foundation that is rock solid in what we believe about the Bible and what we believe about Jesus. We believe about the truths of God's word. We need to make sure this this foundation for us is is rock solid so that you and I can contend for the faith because I don't want us to be ashamed. I don't want to shrink back. Yes, it's hard. It's difficult. It's not easy. Man, I got in a wanky conversation recently with one of my family members and it was really uncomfortable. And it was hard. But at the end, we were able to, f- to affirm each other. Even though we didn't necessarily agree with each other, we could say, listen, I love you. And they could tell me I love you. And I knew that. And I felt that. You and I are called to contend for the faith and live boldly because of who Jesus is. That's where the cross comes in. I can't do this in myself. You can't do this in myself. But if you look to Jesus and who he is, he says, listen, I can do it through you. I can do it through you. That's why the death of Jesus and the cross is so incredibly powerful. And by the way, that's what changed the life of the early church. That's what changed their life. They saw Jesus resurrect from the dead. And they knew and understood the implications of the cross was for sin. Father, thank you for the beauty of the cross. Thank you for the new life that we have. And Father, I I thank you that... You ordained today that Edna and Lynette and Pauline Lynch, these godly saints would be here on a day that we talk about following you. And Father, I thank you for their lives. I thank you for the demonstration. Father, I pray that you would continue to use them to live for you and use all of us that we might take up our cross daily and follow you. And it's the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.